Well, we are continuing our series in the Gospel of John. And I would appreciate your prayers as we go on today. I felt like I finally got my cough under control, but then I found out possibly may have strep. They didn't, uh, I didn't pay the extra to get it tested. They just said, that's probably what you got. So I'm under antibiotics and got that medicine head going on and it can affect you sometimes. In fact, when I was at the doctor, I was just like, have you been here before? And I was like, yeah, I was here for uh, a DUI inspection. And she's like, what? I was like, wait, I didn't know. I meant DOT. <laughs> I was not here for a DUI. I... So anyways, hopefully I won't fumble around too much today. We are continuing our series in the Gospel of John. So if you have your Bible, please turn with me to John chapter 15. And we're going to begin our reading in verse 18. And then we'll end at verse 4 of chapter 16. Hear now the word of our Lord. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you are of the world, the world would love you as, as its own. But because you are not of the world... But I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin, but now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you will also bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues, Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with, I was with you. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, as we gather in your presence today, we open our hearts to receive your word with gratitude and anticipation. May grant us wisdom to understand the humility to learn and the courage to apply the teachings we are about to hear. May your Holy Spirit move among us, binding us together in love and unity and truth. And strengthen us to live out the truths that we discover today in your word. And may our lives be a testament to your grace and mercy. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. Well, we are continuing to examine the farewell speech of Jesus found in chapters 13 through 17 of the Gospel of John. These are the last words spoken by Jesus to his disciples uttered just hours before his death. And John has provided valuable insights in these chapters, particularly here in chapter 15 and surrounding sections, as over 99% of the content is unique to this Gospel. Unlike the other gospel writers, John shares numerous details about Jesus' final moments with his disciples. 
And as Jesus prepares to depart, there's a significant transition that's coming for the disciples. His intention here is to provide peace and to ready them for his imminent departure. And with limited time and a multitude of things to convey to them, Jesus at this point in chapter 15 now teaches his disciples regarding their connection to the world. In, pr in prior discussions, we've observed Jesus instructing them about their association with him and then their association with each other. But now in this chapter, Jesus talks about their relationship with the world. In chapter 15, starting from verse 18 and extending to verse 4 of the chapter 16, which we just read, Jesus addresses the disciples' connection to the world. And his message in these verses is very straightforward. It's very clear. It's unmistakable. It's very clear and to the point. And the point is this. The world will hate you. Jesus began this portion of his teaching by forewarning the disciples that following his departure, they will confront hostility and resistance from the world. And what's even more startling here is who Jesus is referring to when he says world. Specifically in this context, the world refers primarily to the unbelieving Jews during Jesus' time. Now, why do I say that? Well, for starters... Jesus said, they, referring to the world, persecuted him. Well, who has been persecuting Jesus throughout this gospel, as we have seen? It's been primarily the Jews. Verse 25 then goes on to say, but the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. Whose law? Their law. The Jews. And then verse 2 of chapter 16 says that they will put you out of the synagogues. Well, what are the synagogues? Synagogues were the religious gathering places for the Jews. And Jesus says they're going to banish you from them. And then notice what verse 2 goes on to say. Not only will they put you out of the synagogues, indeed the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering his service to God. Friends of the world here, Jesus is primarily talking about are not backwood pagan Gentiles who only believe in science, to quote Nacho Libre. Now, while the word world here can certainly include such people, and it does, and we have no reason to think that it would not include them here, in this specific context, the world that will hate Christians is primarily speaking of religious Jews. Now, I don't want to sidetrack into a lecture about the Israeli Palestinian conflict that's going on today and has been going on for decades. But I'll just simply say this. You need to be very careful who you proclaim to support and be very careful and detailed as to why you're doing it. Make distinctions. Now, I'm not suggesting that as Christians we can't support Israel. There are many reasons one could argue for showing their support of Israel. I like something that P. Andrew Sandlin said on Facebook. He said, there are two points that are equally true simultaneously. One, the state of Israel has no special place in God's plan apart from submission to Jesus Christ. And two, the state of Israel has been a faithful ally of the United States in a deeply troubled region 
and the bloodthirsty attacks by the terrorist organization Hamas are horrific and warrant overwhelming retaliation. Now, as you can see here, one could argue for support of Israel without resorting to the absolute nonsense and perversion of the gospel that we hear coming from many dispensationalists today who say things like, and I saw this on a video clip, well, we need to bomb the Dome of the Rock mosque that's there at the Temple Mount so that the Jews can start rebuilding their temple to usher in the millennium. Folks, that's nonsense. And there are many professing Christians out there voicing support for Israel because they are fueled by this crazy ideology that has put Israel in some sort of third category of people who are considered the people of God and for whom God is going to bless, but he's going to do so apart from them submitting to the Lord Jesus Christ and to his church. And the Bible knows of no such thing and knows, knows of no such plan B. If you notice, even our larger catechism says that in praying thy kingdom come, we should pray for the Jews called. And it cites Paul in Romans 10.1, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. But notice our standards do not lay out some special plan for the Jews apart from the gospel. Apart from submission to Jesus Christ and his church. The unconverted religious Jews are, as regards the gospel, says Paul in Romans 11, enemies for your sake. And likewise, Jesus here in chapter 15 primarily has the unconverted religious Jew in mind as being those of the world who will hate followers of Christ. There is no middle ground here for the religious Jew who rejects Christ. And after Jesus' death, as he warns, this world is poised to exhibit hatred and persecution towards his disciples. And then Jesus explains the rationale behind this hatred. The world will despise them because it despises him. This is explicitly stated in verse 18 of chapter 15, where Jesus points out that if the world harbors hatred for the disciples, it's because it already hated him before they hated them. And then in verse 20, he emphasizes the principle that a servant is not superior to his master, reinforcing the point that if they persecuted Jesus, they will also persecute you. And this truth that Jesus conveyed to his disciples remains equally valid for us today. Just as the disciples of Jesus experienced hatred in his time, the same reality persists for those who are disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ today. As in real estate, it's a sombering truth. It's not a comfortable thing. It's not one that may be warmly received or encouraging. But don't miss the point that this is the essence of this section of Scripture here. The world fundamentally hates Jesus Christ. And it is crucial for us not to be oblivious to this fact. But now, having pointed out that Jesus had religious Jews primarily in mind, that raises another question in my mind. Well, why the hatred then, still? I mean, think about it. Today, if you get on social media and you, you, you hunt for posts about Christianity that are pro-Christian, you almost always will find these rambling pagan atheists ranting about Christianity and how stupid it is and... Many times the reason they give is because they think our Bible is nothing but a bunch of fairy tales and that we serve an invisible sky genie. 
And these people have no place in their thinking for, for God, for the spiritual realm, no place for a God who can't be seen, no place for miracles and so on. But here in this context, who are going to be the people that give the apostles such a hard time? It's religious Jews. These people don't mock the idea of an, of an invisible God. These people don't have a problem with miracles. These people embrace most of our scriptures, at least on the surface, and yet they will still hate the Christian. Why is that? Well, just sticking with the Gospel of John, there are two reasons that come immediately to my mind, and both are contained in the opening prologue to the Gospel of John. Remember what we read, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not, not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which is light to the everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So there's two things that stick out to me in that text. One is the identity of Christ, specifically. And two, the failure of the Jews to rightly understand what their own scripture was teaching them. Those are the two main reasons why I think these religious Jews aren't going to tolerate Christians. They simply cannot get past the doctrine of the Trinity. And even though they have the Hebrew Bible, they have failed to understand the fundamental message of those scriptures concerning their own fallen human heart and their need for salvation. Paul would sum up those two things when he said this in 1 Corinthians 1. Starting verse 20, he says, Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not come to know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Beloved, what lies at the core of the issue here, not only is the identity of Christ specifically, but it's also the inherent hostility and animosity towards the Lord Jesus Christ that is embedded in the fallen human heart. Paul would say it this way in Romans 8, verse 7, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. The mind set on the flesh is fundamentally antagonistic toward God. And as a result, the world harbors animosity towards God's people simply because it harbors animosity towards God. And it's very important that we keep this in mind. It's important to recognize that unbelievers don't reject the gospel because it lacks truth, 
or because it lacks intellectual defense, the fundamental reason for the world's rejection of the gospel and its truth is rooted in the fact that sinners have an inherent hatred and hostility towards God. There exists a foundational animosity and alienation in the hearts of sinners toward God. And by nature, all individuals suppress the truth of God. Paul conveys this in Romans 1.18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And this rejection of truth is rooted in a deep-seated hatred towards Jesus Christ. This is affirmed by the Apostle John in John 3, verses 19 and 20, as we've already seen going through this gospel. There Jesus, described as the light, has entered the world, yet people, due to their wicked deeds, prefer darkness over light. And those engaged in wrongdoing despise the light and avoid it because it exposes their deeds. This aversion of truth is linked to a reluctance to acknowledge wrongdoing. Sinners are averse to Jesus Christ, revealing their evil actions. And it's very important to keep this in mind, again, as we engage the world. Are we going to adhere to the teachings of Scripture on this point? Or are we going to wield to the prevailing ideas of our generation? Will we follow the guidance of the Word of God, or will we be swayed by what appears sensible or popular? When we engage with individuals who are unfamiliar with the Lord Jesus Christ and who are not Christians, we must recognize that at its core there exists a deep-seated hatred of Jesus Christ. And we shouldn't hold a naive belief that the world in general has affection for Jesus or remains indifferent toward Him. It's essential to dispel the notion that the world only mildly opposes Jesus on specific occasions. The truth is, is that the world harbors a strong hatred for Christ. And consequently, this hatred will extend to those who follow Christ. Understanding this is significant for a specific reason. When we share the gospel with people, they are unlikely to readily accept our message. And without this understanding, there might be a temptation on your part then to alter the message, to dilute the gospel, or to sugarcoat it, to make it more acceptable or agreeable to people. So when we communicate the gospel to others, it's important to recognize that they won't readily embrace or appreciate what we're telling them. If you find yourself here today as an unbeliever, or perhaps you're hearing me over the live stream, not identifying as a true Christian, you likely resonate with the truth of what I'm saying to you. Deep within, you acknowledge a lack of affection for Scripture and for Jesus Christ. And in essence, there's a significant aversion to Christ and a genuine dislike for the truth that he represents. And so, as believers, when we share our message, it shouldn't be unexpected if people respond negatively to us. When discussing topics such as sin or the love of God in Christ or how Jesus died on the cross to save sinners, you need to brace yourself for potentially strong 
adverse reactions to what you're saying. The world hates Jesus Christ and is generally resistant to both him and the message. And this is the harsh reality. However, it's not all doom and gloom here. There is a brighter side. When the disciples heard Jesus convey this, they might have wondered about the possibility of anyone being saved if there's such widespread hatred towards them and their master. They might have even feared that this hostility could disrupt the work of the kingdom and make it impossible. Jesus, however, reassures them. Towards the end of verse 20, he asserts that if people kept his word, they would also keep the disciples' words. So Jesus here is emphasizing that his mission is not a lost cause. While persecution is a reality, it's not universal. And the same applies to receiving the message. Not everyone will reject it. Some will believe and be saved. And the principle that the servant is above the master applies not only to persecution, but also to the reception of the word. If they hold on to Christ's word, they will also embrace the disciples' word. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we should have confidence in the power of the word of God. We must comprehend the challenges realistically acknowledging the world's opposition to Christ, yet we also need to be confident in God's power to save sinners, despite the world's resistance. And why can we have confidence in God's power to save through the gospel? We'll look at verses 26 and 27 for the answer. In verse 26, Jesus promises to send the Holy Spirit, the helper, from the Father, who is the Spirit of truth proceeding from the Father. The Holy Spirit will testify about Jesus, and the disciples will also testify because they have been with Jesus from the beginning. This indicates that the Holy Spirit will bear witness in the hearts of those who hear the apostles' message. As the apostles spoke, they could expect that some people would believe their message. Similarly, we can anticipate that some will believe our message as we share the gospel with others. So I encourage you to go out and speak, bringing the gospel to others, even though many may reject it due to their basic hatred toward our master. And as you speak, remember to pray as well, recognizing the need of the Spirit to come and bear witness to the truth of what is being said. Both speaking and praying are essential. Speaking alone doesn't guarantee automatic results. We can't assume that merely uttering the words of the gospel will lead to salvation automatically. And likewise, praying without speaking achieves nothing. Typically, usually, God utilizes his word empowered by the spirit, both the word of God and prayer. And it's through the ministry of the word and prayer that God saves people. The ongoing work of building his kingdom is accomplished through these two means, and we can be confident in this process. So have confidence in the power of God and trust in his power as you share the gospel with others. Recall what we just heard from Paul in 1 Corinthians 1. We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, what does this word, this 
Christ crucified then become? It becomes the power of God and the wisdom of God. Well, I gave two reasons from the opening chapter in John as to why I think these religious Jews would hate Christians. Now, in verse 21 of John 15, Jesus explains himself in this context the underlying reason for the opposition the disciples will face. And what he states here affirms what we have said already. He states that these adversities will occur for his namesake, meaning the disciples will be persecuted because of their association with Jesus. And the fundamental reason behind this opposition is further explained. Those who oppose Jesus and his disciples do so because they lack, they lack knowledge of the one who sent Jesus. People resist Jesus and his followers because they are unfamiliar with the Father who sent Jesus. Jesus goes on to express that they should have known the Father because he came and revealed the Father to them. Despite having been shown, they had no excuse for their ignorance. They couldn't plead ignorance. Jesus had unequivocally demonstrated and spoken about the Father, leaving them without a valid excuse for not embracing him. The rejection of Jesus by the world amounts to a rejection of the Father, and with that carries significant guilt. Those who reject Jesus cannot claim ignorance. In fact, their rejection heightens their guilt. This is evident in verses 22 to 24. Jesus states that if he had not come and spoken to them, they would still have sinned, but their guilt would not be as pronounced. However, because Jesus spoke to them, they now have no excuse for their sin. He emphasizes that those who hate him also hate the Father. And furthermore, if he had not performed works among them that no one else did, their sin and hatred toward him and the Father would not be as profound. And I think a key takeaway from this for us today is to understand that there is a certain level of accountability that comes with religious privileges. You know, we live in a country, even as wacky as it is sometimes, we still enjoy various religious privileges and freedoms. We have a knowledge about God and His truth that others in the world do not have. And while this is a wonderful privilege, understand it, it comes with a significant responsibility. As Jesus stated in Luke 12, 48, to whom much is given, much will be required. Those who have heard the name of Jesus and received knowledge about His works yet fail to come to him for life and for salvation, bear a greater guilt than those who had never heard of Christ. Neglecting or misusing religious privileges increases our accountability. More light brings more responsibility. And let that sink in for a moment. It's truly profound to consider attending church week after week, listening to sermon after sermon, month after month, and for some of you even year after year, yet failing to turn away from your sins and place your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is an exceedingly dangerous situation. To continually hear the word of God, to be consistently in instructed in the truth of God, 
and yet not live according to that word is a matter of great concern. Some among you have been exposed to the teachings of Christ for a very long time, possibly throughout most of your life. You've had the opportunity to hear the words of Jesus, a privilege that some individuals in this world never experience. Moreover, some of you have even witnessed the works of Christ. You say, well, when did I witness that? Well, perhaps within your own family. You may have seen family members or friends transformed by their newfound faith. You've observed the change that has taken place in their lives. And so the question arises, what have you done with this knowledge? What actions have you taken in response to the teachings and works of Christ in your midst? You know, in this present day and place where we live, it's commonplace to hear people talk about God, expressing belief in God, and even discussing prayer regularly. This is especially evident during times of catastrophe when that hurricane comes through town or we hear about another mass shooting. You'll often hear people say our thoughts and prayers are, are with those who are affected. However, one thing you will rarely ever find, just generally speaking, in those moments is any mention of Jesus Christ. In fact, bringing up the name of Jesus sometimes is regarded as, as radical or associated with the religious right wing. You know, you're nuts. And so again, it's crucial to grasp what Jesus is conveying here. Merely talking about God and praying is insufficient. We also need to approach God through the Lord Jesus Christ. This echoes the situation in Jesus' time where Jews, if accused of not believing in God, would assert their belief, citing their Jewish identity and religious practices. And yet the critical issue was their failure to believe in Jesus Christ and to embrace him and to receive him. In John 5, 23, Jesus clearly states, He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. And so it doesn't matter what claims we make about ourselves, how we outwardly appear, or the religious affiliations we profess. No matter how much talk we have about God, if we fail to honor the Son, we are not honoring the Father who sent the Son. As I've said before, Jesus and, Father, and the Father come as a package deal. They're inseparable. And so I ask you today, what is your stance on the Lord Jesus Christ? Who do you say he is? Are you placing your trust in him? Do you believe in him? Is he, is he the focal point of your hope? When you contemplate the afterlife, as Enro alluded to earlier, is your hope grounded in the Lord Jesus Christ? Are you relying on his blood to cleanse away your sins. Some of you need to be made aware of the danger that you're in. You've heard much about the Lord Jesus Christ, but now I ask, what are you doing with that knowledge? If your response isn't aligned with the truth, understand that you are in grave danger. And the time is now to take action. I'm reminded of what is said in Hebrews Again, remember, this is written mainly to those who are part of the outward visible church. 
But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. <coughs> For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not those whose sin, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed entered that rest, as he has said, I have sworn in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from, from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again, he appoints a certain today day today, saying through David so long afterward, and the words are already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession for we do not have a high priest who is un unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Well, there's one more aspect we need to address today. <clears throat> Jesus has been discussing the world's hostility and the challenges the disciples will face once he departs. And then in response to this, Jesus aims to reassure and encourage them by recalling a prior promise to send the Spirit. And so let's look at briefly at verses 26 and 27. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, 
he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. This promise of the Spirit has been previously mentioned in this gospel. We saw it in 14, verse 16. And I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. And then we take note of it again in verse 26 of chapter 14, where it says, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to remembrance all that I have said to you. And now here in chapter 15, Jesus reiterates his promise to give the Holy Spirit, emphasizing the Spirit as the Spirit of truth. The Holy Spirit is promised not only to testify about Jesus, but also to empower the disciples to testify in the face of the world's hatred, opposition, and persecution. Well, let's consider four brief observations about the testimony of the Holy Spirit. First and foremost, notice that the witness of the Spirit takes place simultaneously with the witness of the disciples. In verse 26, the Spirit testifies, and then in verse 27, it stated that the disciples would bear witness. Take note of the reason behind their testimony in verse 27. It's because they have been with Jesus from the beginning. Now, we must know here that this is a unique aspect to those disciples alone. It doesn't directly apply to us. We haven't been with Christ physically since the beginning. And so we must exercise a little caution in how we apply passages like these to ourselves. But nonetheless, while the Spirit is capable of testifying independently, we typically associate the testimony of Christians with the concurrent witness of the Holy Spirit. And that's still true to this day. The two usually go hand in hand. So that's the first observation. The second thing to note about the assistance of the Holy Spirit is the context in which it operates. This assistance is provided within the framework of the ongoing witness of the church and at times during times of intense persecution. The Spirit's aid is evident in our continuous proclamation of the Gospels, emphasized in Acts 1.8 when Jesus informed the disciples that they would be witnesses with the Spirit empowering them to testify in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And while this, again, directly applied to the original disciples as well, it still holds true for us today. Similarly, we see the Great Commission in Matthew 28.20, 20, where Jesus assures believers of his presence until the end of the age, even though those who initially heard those words would not be alive until the end of the age. And thus, we see the Spirit's assistance is embedded in the ongoing witness of Christians to the gospel, especially in moments of severe persecution. An illustrative verse of this is Mark 13, 11, where Jesus instructs the disciples not to worry about what to say when they're arrested, as the Holy Spirit will provide the words. And there again, the context in which we experience the Spirit's assistance is in our continual te uh, testimony of Christ, both through our spoken words and our daily living, and especially during periods of heightened persecution. And then the third thing to consider is the substance of our testimony. The focal point of our witness is Jesus Christ, not merely our individual perspectives on Christ. 
or people's diverse opinions about him, but rather the Jesus Christ revealed in the scriptures. As stated in John 16, 14, Jesus affirms that the Spirit's purpose is to glorify him by taking what belongs to him and making it known to believers. The Spirit does not seek attention for himself. Instead, his ministry centers on directing attention to Jesus Christ and bearing witness to him. Consequently, our testimony should consistently revolve around the revelation of God in Jesus Christ. It should be about his word, his deeds, his death, and his resurrection. And then the fourth, the fourth point to consider is that the Spirit's testimony through the disciples will inevitably create a division in the world. As we noted, this message of the gospel, when faithfully proclaimed, functions as a sword of division, triggering opposition. Jesus, in his own ministry, carried a divisive character. And this divisive nature will persist across time and space through the testimony of the Spirit and of Jesus' followers. When we engage in sharing the gospel, speaking about Jesus Christ, we should anticipate encountering resistance and causing division. In chapter 16, verse 2, Jesus specifically outlines two forms of opposition that the disciples will face in his day. Expulsion from the synagogue and martyrdom. And while this may not seem immediately encouraging, Jesus is providing them with forewarning and preparation. It was crucial for them and it's crucial for us to face the reality of potential opposition and persecution so that we are not caught off guard. And the encouragement lies in the fact that they are not alone. A powerful witness, the Holy Spirit, will enter the scene and his testimony cannot be refuted. When the Spirit works in someone's heart, his testimony prevails. Looking back in history, we see the fulfillment of Jesus' promise on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit descended in power. Peter, having learned his lesson, later affirmed in Acts 5.32 that they are witnesses and the Holy Spirit also bears witness to these things. And this promise has continued to be fulfilled for over 2,000 years as Christians have globally testified to Jesus Christ, some even to the point of persecution in martyrdom. And now finally, as we come to a close, let's just consider a few practical lessons from this text today. The first lesson is that those who are not placing their trust in Christ for salvation are not neutral toward him. This understanding arises from the clear indication that the world harbors hatred toward Christ. If you find yourself in the category of not being a Christian, according to biblical terms, you are in the world category, regardless of your religious practices. Consequently, you do not love Jesus Christ. And the fundamental reality is that there is a posture of hatred towards him if you are not a follower of Christ. It's crucial to recognize that this hatred may manifest in various ways among different 
individuals. Some may express it overtly with blasphemy, especially on social media, while others might be more subtle or mildly disagreeable. Yet despite the diverse expressions, the core remains the same, that without a sincere embrace of Jesus Christ and love, trust, and faith, it ultimately amounts to hatred. As Jesus stated in Matthew 12, verse 30, He who is not with me is against me. Well, there is no middle ground. No one, one is either for Christ or against Christ, either with him or against him, either loving him or hating him. I know people don't want to hear it today, but it's a binary choice. Yes, there are binaries. If you're not a Christian, it's essential to grasp the reality of your position and whose side you are on. And so be clear about your standing before Christ. The Lord is too benevolent, too compassionate, and too loving for anyone to harbor hatred toward him or persist in rebellion. If you are not placing your trust in Christ for salvation, understand that you are not in a neutral position. The time to act is now. Why delay? There is no reason to wait. The second lesson we can take away from this text and application is that we need to engage in worship of the triune God. Our God is uniquely extraordinary, setting the Christian faith apart from all other religions. As expressed in Exodus 15, 11, Who is like you among the gods, O Lord? In Psalm 86, verse 8, There is no one like you among the gods, O Lord. And emphasized throughout Isaiah's prophecies, there is no God comparable to the God of the Bible. He is both one and three. Indeed, a concept challenging for the human mind to fully comprehend. The triune God is fundamentally relational with three divine persons in eternal knowledge and love of each other. And while the essence of God may be beyond our understanding at times, we can certainly engage in worship. Worship isn't reserved for things we fully comprehend. Rather, we worship what is great, glorious, majestic, and exalted. And this section today here in chapter 15 encourages us to worship the triune God for his greatness and majesty. All three persons here are indicated, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And then another lesson that we can take away from this is that every Christian is called to bear witness to Christ. While our methods may differ from those of the apostles, the call to bear witness remains consistent. This calling extends to the farthest corners of the earth, urging us to share the message of Christ in our homes, in our families, our communities, our workplaces, public and private, both locally and globally. Whenever God provides an opportunity, you should seize upon it to speak to others about the Lord Jesus Christ. However, to be effective in this, we also require the assistance of the Holy Spirit, which necessitates prayer. So are you engaged in prayer? Praying for God's help when you have an opportunity, beseeching the Lord for wisdom, guidance, and courage to faithfully represent him. Do you pray for opportunities to share the gospel? And another crucial aspect is recognizing the Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth. So we must refrain from communicating things to others that aren't true according to scripture 
Our witness must align with the truth as revealed in Jesus Christ. By knowing and speaking the truth, we allow the spirit of truth to bear witness to our words. He testifies only to the truth, not to our misconceptions or errors about Christ and the gospel. And this in turn emphasizes the importance of knowing the truth and aligning our speech with scripture and relying on the spirit's guidance for effective witness. And then finally, another practical thing to consider as we've already pointed out, is that our witness for Christ is likely to stir up opposition. People may not appreciate what you say to them. They may not agree with it. Yeah, this is the reality, and it calls for courage, a quality that we may lack at times. And understand, being courageous and bold in this context does not mean having a loud voice or being rude to people. Rather, it involves the freedom to speak the truth without fear of consequences. True boldness is rooted in the conviction that what is being shared is the truth, regardless of the response. To acquire the necessary courage, boldness, and love to speak for Christ without fear of consequences, we must turn to the Holy Spirit. Reflect on the example of Peter and John, who, after being released by the Sanhedrin, returned to their companions and engaged in prayer. And Acts 4.31 reveals that the place where they gathered was shaken, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit. Subsequently, they spoke the word of God with boldness. And this illustrates that being filled with the Spirit is the key to speaking with boldness. Therefore, we earnestly pray for the Holy Spirit to grant us the love, the wisdom, knowledge, and boldness to convey the truth of the gospel wherever and whenever possible. Let's pray.